This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of the Spirit and the Life of Today by Evelyn Underhill Read by Mary Reagan Chapter 6, Part A The Life of the Spirit in the Individual in the last three chapters we have been concerned, almost exclusively, with those facts of psychic life and growth, those instruments and mechanizations, which bear upon or condition our spiritual life. But these wanderings in the soul's workshops, and these analyses of the forces that play on it, give us far too cold or too technical a view of that richly various and dynamic thing, the real regenerated life. I wish now to come out of the workshop, and try to see the spiritual life as the individual man may and should achieve it from another angle of approach. What are we to regard as the heart of spirituality? When we have eliminated the accidental characters with which varying traditions have endowed it, what is it that still so definitely distinguish its possessor from the best, most moral citizen or devoted altruist? Why do the Christian saint, Indian Rishi, Buddhist Arat, Muslim Sufi, all seem to us at bottom men of one race, living under different sanctions, one life, witnessing to one fact. This life, which they show in its various perfections, includes, it is true, the ethical life, but cannot be equated with it. Wherein do its differentia consist? We are dealing with the most subtle of realities, and have only the help of crude words, developed for other purposes than this. But surely we come near to the truth as history and experience show it to us when we say again that the spiritual life in all its manifestations from smallest beginnings to unearthly triumph is simply the life that means God in all his richness, imminent and transcendent, the whole response to the eternal and abiding of which any one man is capable, expressed in and through his this-world life. It requires, then, an objective vision or certitude, something to aim at, and also a total integration of the self, its dedication to that aim. Both terms, vision and response, are essential to it. This definition may seem, at first sight, rather dull. It suggests little of that poignant and unearthly beauty, that heroism, that immense attraction which really belong to the spiritual life. Here, indeed, we are dealing with poetry in action, and we need not words but music to describe it as it really is. Yet all the forms, all the various beauties and achievements of this life of the spirit can be resumed as the reactions of different temperaments to, to the one abiding and inexhaustibly satisfying object of their love. It is the answer made by the whole supple, plastic self, rational and instinctive, active and contemplative, to any or all of those objective experiences of religion which we considered in the first chapter, whether of an encompassing and transcendent reality, of a divine companionship, or of eminent spirit. Such a response we must believe to be itself divinely actuated, fully made, it is found on one hand to call forth the most heroic, most beautiful, most tender qualities in human nature, all that we call holiness, the transfiguration of mere ethics by a supernatural loveliness, breathing another air, satisfying another standard, 
than those of the temporal world. And, on the other hand, this response of the self is repaid by a new sensitiveness and receptivity, a new influx of power. To use theological language, will is answered by grace, and as the will's dedication rises towards completeness, the more fully does new life flow in. Therefore, it is plain that the smallest and humblest beginning of such a life in ourselves, and this inquiry is useless unless it be made to speak to our own condition, will entail not merely an addition to life, but for us too a change in our whole scale of values, a self-dedication. For that which we are here shown as a possible human achievement is not a life of comfortable piety, or the enjoyment of the delicious sensations of the armchair mystic. We are offered, it is true, a new dower of life, access to the full possibilities of human nature, but only upon terms, and these terms include new obligations in respect of that life, compelling us, as it appears, to perpetual hard and difficult choices, a perpetual refusal to sink back into the next best, to slide along a gentle incline. The spiritual life is not lived upon the heavenly hearth rug, within safe distance from the fire of love. It demands, indeed, very often things so hard that seen from the hearth rug, they seem to us superhuman. Immensely generous compassion, forbearance, forgiveness, gentleness, radiant purity, self-forgetting zeal. It means a complete conquest of life's perennial tendency to lag behind the best possible, willing acceptance of hardship and pain. And if we ask how this can be, what it is that makes possible such enhancement of human will and of human courage, the only answer seems to be that of the Johnine Christ, that it does consist in a more abundant life. In the second chapter of this book, we looked at the gradual unfolding of that life in its great historical representatives, and we found its general line of development to lead through disillusion with the merely physical, to conversion to the spiritual, and thence by way of hard moral conflicts and their resolution, to a unification of character, a full integration of the active and contemplative sides of life, resulting in fresh power and a complete dedication to work within the new order and for the new ideals. There was something of the penitent, something of the contemplative, and something of the apostle in every man or woman who thus grew to their full stature and realized all their latent possibilities. But above all there was a fortitude, an all-round power of tackling existence, which comes from complete indifference to personal suffering or personal success. And further, psychology showed us that those workings and readjustments which we saw preparing this life of the spirit were in line with those which prepare us for fullness of life on other levels, that is to say the harnessing of the impulsive nature to the purposes chosen by the consciousness, the resolving of conflicts, the unification of the whole personality about one's dominant interest. These readjustments were helped by the deliberate acceptance of the useful suggestions of religion, the education of the foreconscious, the formation of habits of charity and prayer. The greatest and most real living writers on this subject, Baron von Hugel, has given us another definition of the personal, spiritual life which may fruitfully be compared with this. It must and shall, he says, exhibit rightful contact with and renunciation of 
the particular and fleeting, and with this ever seeks and finds the eternal, deepening and incarnating within its own experience this transcendent otherness. 129. Nothing which we are likely to achieve can go beyond this profound saying. We see how many rich elements are contained in it, effort and growth, a temper both social and ascetic, a demand for and a receiving of power. True, to some extent it restates the position at which we arrived in the first chapter, but we now wish to examine more thoroughly into that position and discover its practical applications. Let us then begin by unpacking it and examining its chief characters one by one. If we do this, we find that it demands of us, one, rightful contact with the particular and fleeting, that is, a willing acceptance of all this world tasks, obligations, relations, and joys, in fact, the act of life of becoming, in its completeness. Two, but also a certain renunciation of that particular and fleeting, a refusal to get everything out of it that we can for ourselves to be possessive or attribute to it absolute worth. This involves a sense of detachment or asceticism, of further destiny and obligation for the soul than complete earthly happiness or here and now success. 3. And with this ever, not merely in hours of devotion, to seek and find the eternal, penetrating our wholesome this-world action through and through with the very spirit of contemplation. 4. Thus deepening and incarnating, bringing in, giving body to, and in some sense exhibiting by means of our own growing and changing experience that transcendent otherness, the fact of the life of the spirit in the here and now. The full life of the spirit, then, is once more declared to be active, contemplative, ascetic, and apostolic, though nowadays we express these abiding human dispositions in other and less formidable terms. If we translate them as work, prayer, self-discipline, and social service, they do not look quite so bad. But even so, what a tremendous program to put before the ordinary human creature, and how difficult it looks when thus arranged. That balance to be discovered and held between due contact with this present living world of time and due renunciation of it, that continual penetration of the time world with the spirit of eternity. But now, in accordance with the ruling idea which has occupied us in this book, let us arrange these four demands in different order. Let us put number three first, ever seeking and finding the eternal conceive, at least, that we do this really and in a practical way. Then we discover that, placed as we certainly are in a world of succession, most of the seeking and finding has got to be done there, that the times of pure abstraction in which we touch the non-successive and supersensual must be few. Hence it follows that the first and second demands are at once fully met, for if we are indeed faithfully seeking and finding the eternal whilst living, as all sane men and women must do, in closest contact with the particular and fleeting, our acceptances and our renunciations will be governed by this higher term of experience. And further, the transcendent otherness, perpetually envisaged by us as alone giving the world of sense its beauty, reality, and value, will be incarnated and expressed by us 
in this sense-life, and thus ever more completely tasted and known. It will be drawn by us, as best we can, and often at the cost of bitter struggle, into the limitations of humanity, and tincturing our attitude and our actions. And in the degree in which we thus appropriate it, it will be given out by us again to other men. All this, of course, says again that which men have been constantly told by those who sought to redeem them from their confusions, and show them the way to fullness of life. Seek first the kingdom of God, said Jesus, and all the rest shall be added to you. Love, said St. Augustine, and do what you like. Let nothing, says Thomas Akempis, be great or high or acceptable to thee but purely God. 130. And Kabir, open your eyes of love and see him who pervades this world. Consider it well and know that this is your own country. 131. Our whole teaching, says Burma, is nothing else than how man should kindle in himself God's light world. 132. I do not say that such a presentation of it makes the personal spiritual life any easier. Nothing does that. But it does make its central implicit rather clearer, shows us at once its difficulty and its simplicity since it depends on the consistent subordination of every impulse and every action to one regnant aim and interest. In other words, the unification of the whole self round one center, the highest conceivable by man. Each of man's behavior cycles is always directed towards some end, of which he may or may not be vividly conscious. But in that perfect unification of the self which is characteristic of the life of the spirit, all his behavior is brought into one stream of purpose and directed towards one transcendent end. And this simplification alone means for him a release from conflicting wishes and so a tremendous increase of power. If then we admit this formula, ever seeking and finding the eternal, which is of course another rendering of Royce Brooks aiming at God as the prime character of a spiritual life, the secret of human transcendence, what are the agents by which it is done? Here, men and women of all times and all religions who have achieved this fullness of life agree in their answer, and by this answer we are at once taken away from dry philosophic conceptions and introduced into the very heart of human experience. It is done, they say, on man's part, by love and prayer. And these, properly understood in their inexhaustible richness, joy, pain, dedication, and noble simplicity cover the whole field of the spiritual life. Without them, that life is impossible. With them, if the self be true to their implications, some measure of it cannot be escaped. I said, love and prayer properly understood, not as two movements of emotional piety, but as fundamental human dispositions as the typical attitude and action which control man's growth into greater reality. Since then they are of such primary importance to us, it will be worthwhile at this stage to look into them a little more closely. First, love, that overworked and ill-used word, often confused on the one hand with passion and on the other with amiability. If we ask the most fashionable sort of psychologist what love is, 
He says that it is the impulse urging us towards that end which is the fulfillment of any series of deeds or behavior cycle, the psychic thread on which all the apparently separate actions making up that cycle are strung and united. In this sense, love need not be fully conscious, reach the level of feeling, but it must be an imperative inward urge. And if we ask those who have known and taught the life of the spirit, they too say that love is a passionate tendency, an inward vital surge of the soul towards its source, 133, which impels every living thing to pursue the most profound trend of its being, reaches consciousness in the form of self-giving and of desire, and its only satisfying goal in God. Love is for them much more than its emotional manifestations. It is the ultimate cause of the true activities of all active things, no less. This definition, which I take as a matter of fact from St. Thomas Aquinas, 134, would be agreeable to the most modern psychologist. He might give the hidden steersman of the psyche in its perpetual movement towards novelty a less beautiful and significant name. This indwelling love, says Plotinus, is no other than the spirit which, as we are told, walks with every being, the affection dominant in each several nature. It implants the characteristic desire, the particular soul strained towards its own natural objects, brings forth its own love, the guiding spirit realizing its worth and the quality of its being. 135. Does not all this suggest to us once more that at whatever level it be experienced, the psychic craving, the urgent spirit within us pressing out to life is always one, and that the sublimation of this vital craving, its direction to God, is the essence of regeneration. There, in our instinctive nature, which, as we know, makes us the kind of animal we are, abides that power of loving which is really the power of living, the cause of our actions, the controlling factor in our perceptions, the force pressing us into any given type of experience, turning aside for no obstacles, but stimulated by them to a greater vigor. Each level of the universe makes solicitations to this power, the worlds of sense, of thought, of beauty, and of action. According to the degree of our development, the trend of the conscious will is our response, and according to that response will be our life. The world to which a man turns himself, says Burma, and in which he produces fruit, the same is Lord in him, and this world becomes manifest in him. 136 from all this it becomes clear what the love of God is, what St. Augustine meant when he said that all virtue, and virtue after all means power, not goodness, lay in the right ordering of love, the conscious orientation of desire. Christians, on the authority of their master, declare that such love of God requires all that they have, not only of feeling, but also of intellect and of power since he is to be loved with heart and mind and strength. Thought and action on highest levels are involved in it, for it means not religious emotionalism, but the unflickering orientation of the whole self towards him, ever seeking and finding the eternal. The linking up of all behavior on that string, so that the apparently hard and always heroic choices which are demanded are made at last because they are inevitable. It is true that this dominant interest will give to our lives a special emotional color and a special kind of happiness, but in this, as in the best, 
deepest, richest human love, such feeling tone and such happiness, though in some natures of great beauty and intensity, are only to be looked upon as secondary characters and never to be aimed at. When St. Teresa said that the real object of the spiritual marriage was the incessant production of work, work, 137, I have no doubt that many of her nuns were disconcerted, especially the type of ease-loving conservatives whom she and her intimates were accustomed to refer to as the pussycats. But in this direct application to religious experience of St. Thomas's doctrine of love, she set up an ideal of the spiritual life which is as valid at the present day in the entanglements of our social order as it was in the enclosed convents of 16th century Spain. Love, we said, is the cause of action. It urges and directs our behavior, conscious and involuntary, towards an end. The mother is irresistibly impelled to act towards her child's welfare, the ambitious man toward success, the artist towards expression of his vision. All these are examples of behavior, love driven towards ends, and religious experience discloses to us a greater, more inclusive end, and this vital power of love as capable of being used on the highest levels, regenerated, directed to eternal interests, subordinating behavior, inspiring suffering, unifying the whole self and its activities, mobilizing them for this transcendental achievement. This generous love, to go back to the quotation from Baron von Hugel which opened our inquiry, will indeed cause the behavior it controls to exhibit both rightful contact with and renunciation of the particular and fleeting, because in and through this series of linked deeds it is uniting with itself all human activities, and in and through them is seeking and finding its eternal end. So, in that rightful bringing in of novelty which is the business of the fully living soul, the most powerful agent is love, understood as the controlling factor of behavior, the sublimation and union of will and desire. Let love, says Burma, be the life of thy nature. It killeth thee not, but quickeneth thee according to its life, and then thou livest, yet not to thy own will, but to its will. For thy will becometh its will, and then thou art dead to thyself, but alive to God. 138. There is the true, solid, and for us most fruitful doctrine of divine union, unconnected with any rapture, trance, ecstasy, or abnormal state of mind, a union organic, conscious, and dynamic with the creative spirit of life. If we go on now to ask how, specially, we shall achieve this union in such degree as it is possible to each one of us, the answer must be that it will be done by prayer. If the seeking of the eternal is actuated by love, the finding of it is achieved through prayer. Prayer, in fact, understood as a life or state, not an act or an asking, is the beginning, middle, and end of all that we are now considering. As the social self can only be developed by contact with society, so the spiritual self can only be developed by contact with the spiritual world. And such humble yet ardent contact with the spiritual world, opening up to its suggestions our impulses, our reveries, our feelings, our most secret dispositions, as well as our mere thoughts, is the essence of prayer, understood in its widest sense. No more than surrender or love can prayer be reduced to one act. 
those who seek to sublimate it into pure contemplation are as limited at one end of the scale as those who reduce it to articulate petition are at the other. It contains in itself a rich variety of human reactions and experiences. It opens the door upon an unwalled world in which the self truly lives and therefore makes widely various responses to its infinitely varying stimuli. Into that world the self takes, or should take, its special needs, aptitudes and longings, and matches them against its apprehension of eternal truth. In this meeting of the human heart, with all that it can apprehend of reality, not adoration alone, but unbounded contrition, not humble dependence alone, but joy, peace, and power, not rapture alone, but mysterious darkness, must be woven into the fabric of love. In this world the soul may sometimes wander as if in pastures, sometimes is poised breathless and intent. Sometimes it is fed by beauty, sometimes by most difficult truth, and experiences the extremes of riches and destitution, darkness, and light. It is not, says Plotinus, by crushing the divine into a unity, but by displaying its exuberance, as the Supreme himself has displayed it, that we show knowledge of the might of God. 139. Thus, by that instinctive and warmly devoted direction of its behavior, which is love, and that willed attention to and communion with the spiritual world, which is prayer, all the powers of the self are united and turned towards the seeking and finding of the eternal. It is by complete obedience to this exacting love, doing difficult and unselfish things, giving up easy and comfortable things, in fact by living, living hard on the highest levels, that men more and more deeply feel, experience, and enter into their spiritual life. This is a fact which must seem rather awkward to those who put forward pathological explanations of it. And on the other hand, it is only by constant contacts with and recourse to the energizing life of the spirit that this hard vocation can be fulfilled. Such a power of reference to reality, of transcending the world of succession and its values, can be cultivated by us, and this education of our inborn aptitude is a chief function of the discipline of prayer. True, it is only in times of recollection or of great emotion that this profound contact is fully present to consciousness. Yet, once fully achieved and its obligations accepted by us, it continues as a grave melody within our busy outward acts, and we must, by right direction of our deepest instincts, so find and feel the eternal all the time, if indeed we are to actualize and incarnate it all the time. From this truth of experience, religion has deducted the doctrine of grace and the general conception of man as able to do nothing of himself. This need hardly surprise us. For equally on the physical plane man can do nothing of himself if he be cut off from his physical sources of power, from food to eat and air to breathe. Therefore the fact that his spiritual life too is dependent upon the life-giving atmosphere that penetrates him and the heavenly food which he receives makes no fracture in his experience. Thus we are brought back by another path to the fundamental need for him in some form of the balanced active and contemplative life. In spite of this, Many people seem to take it for granted that if a man believes in and desires to live a spiritual life, he can live in utter independence of spiritual food. He believes in God, loves his neighbor, wants to do good, and just goes ahead. The result of this is that the life of the God-fearing citizen, or the social Christian, as now conceived and practiced, 
is generally the starved life. It leaves no time for the silence, the withdrawal, the quiet attention to the spiritual, which is essential if it is to develop all its powers. Yet the literature of the spirit is full of warnings on this subject. Taste and see that the Lord is sweet. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. These are practical statements, addressed not to specialists, but to ordinary men and women, with the normal psychophysical makeup. They are literally true now, or can be, if we choose. They do not involve any peculiar training or unnatural effort. A sliding scale goes from the simplest prayer experience of the ordinary man to that complete self-loss and complete self-finding, which is called the transforming union of the saint. And somewhere in this series, every human soul can find a place. If this balanced life is to be ours, if we are to receive what St. Augustine called the food of the full-grown, to find and feel the eternal, we must give time and place to it in our lives. I emphasize this because its realization seems to me to be a desperate modern need, a need exhibited supremely in our languid and ineffectual spirituality, but also felt in the too busy, too entirely active and hurried lives of the artist, the reformer, and the teacher. St. John of the Cross says in one of his letters, What is wanting is not writing or talking. There is more than enough of that, but silence and action. For silence joined to action produces recollection and gives the spirit a marvelous strength. Such recollection, such a gathering up of our interior forces and retreat of consciousness to its ground, is the preparation of all great endeavor, whatever its apparent object may be. Until we realize that it is better, more useful, more productive of strength to spend, let us say, the odd ten minutes in the morning feeling and finding the eternal than in flicking the newspaper, that this will send us off to the day's work properly oriented, gathered together, recollected, and really endowed with new power of dealing with circumstance. We have not begun to live the life of the Spirit, or grasped the practical connection between such a daily discipline and the power of doing our best work, whatever it may be. End of chapter 6, part A. Footnotes, part A. 129. This doctrine is fully worked out in the last two sections of Eternal Life. 130. De Emit Christi, Book 2. 131. 100 Poems of Kabir, page 78. 132. Six Theosophic Points, page 75. 133. C. L. Roycebrook, The Mirror of Eternal Salvation. 134. In Librum Dionysi de Divinus Nominibus Commentaria. 135. Aeneid three. 136. Burma. Six Theosophic Points, page 75. 137. The Interior Castle, Seventh Habitation. 138. Burma, The Way to Christ, Part 4. 139. Aeneid two nine nine. End of chapter 6, part A.